Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to This is Labor in California, a podcast from Ogletree Deacons, where we bring you a monthly overview of traditional labor issues in California, along with how employers may be handling those issues. I'm Maria Anastas, based in our Los Angeles office, and normally I'm joined by my colleague Daniel Adlong in Orange County, and it's just the two of us, but today we're very fortunate because we are joined by another one of our colleagues, uh, Karen Tynan from our Sacramento office, who is a safety expert, a Cal OSHA expert, and due to some sweeping changes that are being proposed, and Karen will educate us further, um, changes to Cal OSHA's COVID-19 prevention emergency temporary standards, we thought it would be useful to have a discussion not only about what those changes may entail, but the intersection with traditional labor. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Maria and Daniel. It's great to be here. I've been very busy. Uh, We only received the first draft of the revised Section 3205 Emergency Temporary Standard on Friday, And so we've been fast and furious looking it over and trying to discern uh, the changes, the impact. And one of the first things I'd like to tell your listeners is that the schedule for the review of the changes, the vote on the changes, and the adoption of the changes. So May 20th, the Cal OSHA Standards Board will evaluate these proposed changes and vote. We believe that the sweeping changes and updates will be approved. And then for 10 days, the Office of Administrative Law reviews this new regulation prior to adoption. And so we expect that these new regulations could be adopted May 30th, June 1st-ish, those 10 days. And I wanted to give a few highlights before we jump in to the rub with safety and labor. We're going to have some new definitions, including vaccinated individuals. We're going to have an incorporation of uh, vaccinated people in the workplace. We are switching from defining our workplace as a location and instead defining an exposed group. And also, there are a few changes to training and then also there are going to be some proposals for the implementation of a voluntary respiratory program beginning July 31st for unvaccinated people in the workplace. So uh, there's quite a bit that that represents, um, and I think people will see this as a as an updating, a shifting for some of the things that didn't work well, some of the rules that were difficult to understand. And also because in November we didn't have vaccinations. And so now, and I wanted to share this definition with the listeners 
fully vaccinated is going to mean that the employer has documentation showing that the person has received at least 14 days prior either the second dose in a two-dose COVID vaccine or the single dose in a vaccine. And so uh, that's going to be very new. And then basically vaccinated individuals will be able to not wear their mask if they're working together. There will be different protocols for if a vaccinated person is exposed to someone with COVID. So very big changes um, with the definitions and also with the documentation of contact tracing. And so Maria and Daniel, I'm interested, this change in vaccinated individuals, it's not that it's creating two classes in the workplace, but it is creating a distinction among employees with the vaccinations and the social distancing in the workplace, and um, also with the documentation that people are vaccinated. How do you see, um, I'm interested, so I can learn as a safety professional, how do you see just the definitional changes and the the vaccinations? What's happening with that um, from your perspective? Well, Daniel and I talked about this uh, a little bit just in terms of how employers who are unionized might react and what are going to be their responsibilities going forward. And just sort of at a high level, if these new regulations or if the clarifications, however you characterize them, to the extent they impose requirements on employers that are pretty black and white, there really isn't going to be a requirement that the employer bargain over the changes or the requirements with the with the union. So if there's a, a mandate that you that an employer provide respirators, for example, you know, that piece alone, there's no bargaining obligation associated with that. The bargaining obligation is triggered when there's some element of discretion afforded the employer as part of these changes. And in that scenario, there likely is a bargaining obligation because an employer can't typically unilaterally implement changes that impact bargaining unit employees you know, without negotiating with the union. What are your thoughts, Daniel? I see kind of area upon area upon area where a union can try to seek the ability to bargain. Karen talked about it like it sounds great that somebody who, for example, has been vaccinated would have a different requirement if they come in contact with somebody with COVID. And I think that provides a little bit more leeway on behalf of the employer. On the flip side, I can see a union saying, well, I appreciate that that's the regulation, but for whatever reason, we still have a group, a subset of bargaining unit members that are concerned that even if they have um, the vaccine, that there are still potential dangers and exposures and seek to bargain about those issues. To the extent that there's discretion, they, they're going to seek, I think, try to take advantage to bargain and might either sometimes make it easier. I've been at union halls where you could see that they had quick access to masks and they were able to get them, which could be great for an employer. Or if you have an employer where they don't have a good relationship and you're having difficulty, maybe accessing masks could become difficult during the negotiations as they press for certain requirements and things. One of the first things that I thought of when I was just running through 
the regulations was, or actually it was, it was your blog post, Karen. And because <laughs> it just provided a really comprehensive summary. And in reading through that, the really the first thing that hit me, um, in addition to the obvious, which is, you know, our, our unionized clients going to be in a position where they have to engage in bargaining over some of this stuff. But really beyond that, you know, this is going to give unions an easy opportunity to pummel employers with information requests, seeking um, information that would give the union an opportunity to evaluate whether the employer is in compliance or not. And then you're dealing with the grievance procedure or the union, I'm sure, contacting, you know, Cal OSHA and, and all of that. But that, that's kind of the thing that stuck out for me the most was, oh, I can, I can just anticipate from now, you know, having a client send us a PDF and, and you know, it's a, it's a 10 page or 15 page information request from the union, um, asking the employer to provide detailed information around what they're doing to comply. And there's, there's really no way out of that um, unless the requests are, you know, not relevant or overly broad, et cetera, the, the typical objections that an employer can make. But um, that, that's, that's the one thing that I anticipate for the, the information request, and I think what we've seen since November 30th of 2020, mm-hmm. is that the regulation as it, as it was passed last year in 2020, of course, required employers to keep track of COVID-19 cases with the employee's name, contact information, occupation, location, et cetera. And so I think that the record of the cases and the regulations required of the contact tracing, I could see that as a huge area Mm -hmm. where a union could demand documents of the COVID cases, the contact tracing, and then actions taken. And I can't help but think, golly gee, you know, how do you protect people's medical information and, and you, these documents are flying around maybe it, and people have giant spreadsheets. It, it does seem to me that the contact tracing and the tracking of the COVID cases, and also, you know, if the employer's providing PPE, things like that, huge area to submit these big, big information requests. And then you're kind of chasing your tail for days trying to get all this information. I, I don't know how many days people have to comply with these information requests, but also when you're dealing with managing employees and COVID cases and contact tracing, to have these information requests, it seems burdensome. Well, it certainly can be, and a, and a distraction. Um, sometimes it's it's really just a tool that labor will will utilize during bargaining for various reasons. The other thing that Daniel and I discussed was how our unionized clients will go about determining the disciplinary level if if, if their bargaining unit employees don't comply with the the face covering definition that you also referenced in your blog post. So there's a tightening of the definition of face covering to specifically exclude a scarf, ski mask, you know, bandana, turtleneck, all of those things, or a single layer of fabric. And so when an employer encounters an, uh, an employee 
who isn't in compliance with, with that definition, how far can they go to avoid being cited by Cal OSHA? But at the same time, you kind of mm-hmm. have to walk that tightrope because um, a union might try to, you know, accuse the employer of violating the just cause standard, for example. You know, after how many oh. times does someone get terminated for not complying with this face covering definition? And maybe that aspect is subject to bargaining as well, since maybe a lot of employers don't have the definition of an appropriate face covering or a legally compliant face covering in their policies right now. In in their their COVID prevention plan is going to need to be updated for this. Mm-hmm. And it is a very common question I get from safety managers uh, about noncompliance, like, oh, you know, we've we've caught people wearing their mask below their nose, or we've had other employees complain that they see coworkers, you know, improperly wearing their mask or not sanitizing. And then the question is, well, you know, we're in a pandemic. We don't want to be the bad guys, but we do want to discipline them. And 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 so then it requires a thoughtful analysis. And I will say, Maria. It is very important if you if you think about defending Cal OSHA citations, part of showing that you have a vigorous safety program is showing that you discipline employees for safety infractions. For example, deviating from lockout tag out policy. For example, you know, failing to wear safety shoes or your safety glasses. And so how you treat people for safety infractions should be consistent with your COVID prevention plan and then what you were doing before 2020. So I think it's a very interesting area. And I think that after May 30th or so, especially with the tightening of face coverings, the distinctions around vaccinated individuals, we will see this question bubbling back up and, and lots of employers asking for advice on that. It's similar to what do you do when an employee isn't wearing steel toe shoes? Would Cal OSHA look at that in the same way or is it are they completely two separate? No, I, th- I think that's a good analogy because it's personal protective equipment, right? So what would you typically do if someone didn't wear their steel toed shoes to work or their... Um, uh, goggles, something mm-hmm. similar like that. Or if they didn't wear, um, you know how in the chicken plants, they have those chain mail gloves, right? If you're using mm-hmm. a knife, things like that. Taking a look at what you would traditionally do for a PPE mm-hmm. violation uh, is probably very helpful. Mm-hmm. And one of the most common questions we get is, well, what does a Cal OSHA citation cost or what are the penalties or what does it mean? Well, a serious citation can be nine to $18,000, sometimes more, and that's per occurrence. And I think that that's a big financial hit for companies to take in the middle of a pandemic, Maria. I think uh, Daniel wanted to make a point. I was just going to say, as I, as I hear these, you know, the conversations about the mass and, you know, about discipline and are also hearing what the Karen's comments earlier about the contact tracing and providing information in your comments, it just seems to me, Maria, that there comes a lot of work that needs to be done to comply with the requirements. But then on top of that, in order to make sure you're doing it right, if you're at an organized facility, you probably have to have a lot of 
discussions with your bargaining representative to get out in front of potential issues. So instead of acting now and then having to deal with the fallout of unions complaining about whatever it might be and dealing, you know, with concurrent unfair labor practice charges that you made X, Y, and Z change related to COVID and you didn't bargain, that there's this other vein to complying with the Cal OSHA regulations is how much discussion do I need to have with the union with respect to like the discipline or if they're making information requests, mm-hmm. bargaining about confidentiality. It, there's a whole other component and requirement that comes along for these bargaining facilities these facilities that have bargaining representatives that I just think make it all the more time consuming. Were there any other developments that we might want to highlight in our remaining minutes? Yeah. Thanks, Maria. I think that my big takeaway from this update is that vaccinated individuals will fall into a different category. And and when you can have vaccinated individuals in a room together, they don't have to social distance. They don't have to wear a mask. So one question I'm already getting is, can we cohort vaccinated people together? For example, can we have a break room that's only for vaccinated people? Can we reorganize our assembly line for assembly line A to be all vaccinated people and we they can work more closely together and not social distance. So how will we distinguish without discriminating vaccinated people in the workplace? Because every workplace is different, whether it's a chicken processing plant, a huge distribution center for furniture in Riverside, or you know, grocery stores, grocery distribution. Um, customizing how you're going to treat and make your workplace work for vaccinated people, I, I think is critical. And I'd be interested in at a site where you do have union representation, can you move vaccinated people into cohort groups? Can you have a you know rest break area where vaccinated people take off their masks? I'm not saying I know the answers to these questions, mm-hmm. but I'm saying they're the questions that are bubbling up. And, and I would say, you know, at least with respect to the experience we have with, with unions and uh, a lot of our unionized clients, that it's, it's highly likely that our clients will be receiving requests to bargain over a lot of these, a lot of these issues. They will want to be very involved at every step when it comes to implementing any changes that that impact, you know, terms and conditions of employment. And that's where a union steps in. So I, I see a lot of bargaining demands and, and probably some fights potentially. Maria, I think you're right on on that too. Just a lot of bargaining demands and a lot of fights. And I think, you know, depending on the relationship with the bargaining representative, it could really affect how the process goes. And I think also too, an employer might take advantage or seize this moment to maybe improve their relationship with the bargaining representative if they go about it the right way. I agree. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't have to be all negative. Um, And we do have, have clients with constructive relationships with their, with their union. So um, you're right. I don't mean to be doom and gloom. So (laughs) what's the next step as Karen, just in terms of these, these changes, because I'm thinking that we might want to, um, have you on again so we can 
give everyone an update. Well, that'd be great. I think we will definitely know more at the end of May. We will see if these regulations get very slight tweaking. That's really all we're expecting. Very slight, move a few words here. But employers must prepare for this distinction with vaccinated individuals for these new definitions. And there is going to be a requirement, your your CPP, your COVID prevention plan, that hopefully everyone's had in place since November 30th, is going to need an update. And with these changes in definitions, with some of the process changes, we've just really given the highlights. But if we drill down into some of the workplace exclusions or sending notices of COVID exposure, those kind of nuance changes are going to happen And even though we feel like we're coming kind of out of the pandemic, uh, we still see uh, occasional COVID cases. We don't know if there'll be another wave. Uh, And so getting that revised COVID prevention plan in place, implementing it in June and being good to go, I think is a best practice and also prepares you for that Calosha inspection. And lastly, I'd like to close Maria Um, and tell your listeners that one of the top ways that Cal OSHA does come out to a job site is when they get a complaint. And where do complaints come from? They come from employees who believe the workplace is unsafe. And also there's another um, entity that can complain to Cal OSHA, and that's a union. Cal OSHA responds strongly, quickly, and efficiently to complaints from employees and from unions. Okay. Well, I think that's very helpful information and we really appreciate your time today, Karen. Thanks you guys. I love working with you guys and collaborating on this. Okay. We'll do it again. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.